Welcome to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we welcome founder and CEO of WiseDocs, Connor Atchison, to discuss why veterans make great entrepreneurs. Connor shares his journey working in the Canadian Armed Forces for over a decade and how he was supporting Canadian Armed Forces veterans navigate the healthcare system and the problems dealing with healthcare records. Next, we ask Connor if he ever suffers from imposter syndrome coming from the armed forces into the tech world and what skills he was able to rely on from his time in the armed forces to help get started on the WiseDocs problem. Finally, we ask Connor how COVID had such a big impact on his business and almost shut him down, but how he was able to quickly pivot and then thrive in the business post-COVID. But before we jump into our episode with Connor Atchison, we welcome back to the tank our favorite guest, John Ruffalo, to discuss the news rundown happening in the tech ecosystem. All right, John, welcome back. We missed you for a week here on the News Rundown segment, but I mean, holy shit, is there a lot to cover? I don't even know where to start. I I leave for a week and uh, an entire bank goes down. Jesus. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know what? I want to go back a little bit before all of this started late last week because you you had a pretty interesting front row seat at uh, the Upfront Summit that you mentioned to me in our discussion over the weekend. Can you tell our audience what exactly you witnessed during that time at the summit? It actually all started on February the 22nd on a Financial Times article where it was a very well-written article that talked about the $92 billion that was invested in these mortgage-backed bonds at 1.6%. I was astonished by that, and I was wondering, how is this thing really true? And lo and behold, a week later, uh, the CEO, Greg Becker, was speaking just uh, a couple of... Uh, panels after me at the Upfront Summit, I thought, oh, well, here's my opportunity to validate some of my big concerns. And his responses were nothing short of disappointing. And the reaction that I had immediately with uh, my LP, which was a senior bank executive, was, oh, my God, this bank is going to go down. You know, it's interesting because I think what everyone sort of thought happened was not actually what caused all of this to happen. You know, what SVB had been doing is something that a lot of banks always do. But for a bank of their size, even though they were the 16th largest bank in the US, they seem to be overly weighted in long duration mortgage bonds, which as everyone knows, with interest rates rising in the short term, you've created this inverted yield curve where yields in the front half are much higher and yields in the back half are much lower and therefore causing a yield mismatch for deposits that are being held at the bank. Correct. So explain maybe to our audience also why they may have decided to do it this way and how they were caught completely offside at such a large amount given their total deposit size. The vast majority of commentary was completely off. They were talking about their business. Their business was great. It was a great business, great customers. They Nothing wrong with it. It was a balance sheet issue from the treasury side. And they had a lot of excess deposits following COVID. And the decision was made in 2021. The correct decision to say, "Uh uh-oh, we better throttle back our lending activities because a number of these companies are going to go under and won't be able to repay back. Great call. So if you do that and you have all these excess deposits, you've got to put it someplace. And what astonished me, 10-year fixed at 1.6%. And this is the part that Greg Becker said that I just said, oh, my God, it's a terrible answer. He said, how are we supposed to know that interest rates were going to rise that much? Dude, you just called it on the business side. You're inconsistent. They should have gone short term and had a variety of terms and mix it like any good pension fund or other financial services company would uh, would do. This was a complete breakdown on treasury risk management, the CEO and the board, nothing else. The rest is all noise that followed it. Yeah. And unfortunately, that noise really turned into a massive tornado that nobody could actually predict. And so maybe let's talk about exactly what happened on that Thursday, Friday. And I'll tell you from our perspective, 
Obviously, we started getting calls from founders. People were saying, is this really true? Is there a fire or should we not be concerned? You know, I lived through the global financial crisis. I was working on Wall Street. I remember how panic were when everyone woke up with Washington Mutual and Lehman and Bear Stearns and all that happening. You know, those are public markets. They move very fast. But when you start to have private small companies asking, should they wire their entire treasury balance out of a bank all at once? it becomes a really big problem in a very quick period of time. So maybe give our audience exactly some of the numbers of how big this got so quickly when these starting VC funds started telling people to withdraw their capital. Yeah, so what what was the trigger now? So now you have a broken balance sheet. And remember, I already knew at that point, this story is over, but I never imagined there would be this rapid run. What they did, okay, and this is where I was quite upset. So now the interviewer at the panel said, you're not going to have a liquidity squeeze. Those weren't the exact words. And he said, no, 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 we're fine on liquidity. You know what he did the next day? Borrowed $21 or billion or though against the bond book. And guess what? Not at 1.6%, but probably as something closer to 4%. So now you've got a negative spread. And now I'm going, Greg, I love you. I've known you for 25 years. You're an honorable man, but you're full of shit now. There is a liquidity squeeze. And that was the first step. And by the way, under the uh, Trump administration, they changed the regulatory oversight so that they do not have to book mark-to-market loss. And their mark their marked loss was $15 billion, wiping out all of their capital. So they were not required to book it. But what happened was they surprised the market. Now, after saying they have no liquidity problems, they've surprised the market with a billion and a half dollar offering in the $500 million General Atlantic. So were you lying now? Were you really having the liquidity squeeze. And that's when the shorts went, oh my God, you have lied or you've given us a misrepresentation a week ago. That was the the, the fuse. And frankly, that's what triggered one VC in particular to make an announcement of everybody get your money. And frankly, the run was started, in my view, by the VCs, who were the only group of people that actually understood the business. But that's where the panic really set in. Yeah, it was a tangled web of private portfolio that hadn't been marked to market, that didn't need to be kind of analyzed on a daily basis until people say, well, you actually do have a liquidity crisis. And because you have to go mark to market, you definitely need to actually raise capital. And so that General Atlantic $500 million convertible preferred pref that they couldn't raise the rest on, plus the $15 billion offset in margin between what they had to borrow versus what their assets and liability was, you started realizing with a market cap of only $12 billion prior to the, the shorts you know, crushing it, there's no equity value left in this business. And, and therefore, everyone starts to run. And that's how we end up with this 20, what was it? Uh, 28 billion or something of withdrawals. 47, 47, 47 billion, billion. 47 ended up being 47 billion out of about 160 ish or so. Yes. No. And explain this to Canadians though, because everyone thinks our, our banking system is, is, is quite resilient to any of this. It's not that our banking system is quite resilient to any of this. It's that no one ever expects to see that amount of withdrawals from any bank in that short period of time. And no one has the liquidity on their balance sheet to meet those withdrawals. That is correct. And and as one bank CEO reminded me, the one advantage of the Canadian banks and the you know the big four US ones is that their deposits are highly diversified. The problem was the run started by the VCs. Let's not only blame VCs, but it's the call it the innovation ecosystem, but it was VCs that clearly started being having the greatest voice, particularly on Twitter. Because of the narrow ecosystem, it was very easy to have a bank run that was actually riding along the rails of Twitter. 
That I haven't seen before. Crazy. I mean, to, to define it as a, a bank run problem, really, let's talk about where the Fed could have really helped this uh, earlier on in the process. Because the, the night at which they had to settle with the Federal Reserve to be a regulated bank, you have to have a letter of liquidity, basically, positive liquidity to can be continued to be supported by the Fed and have access to the discount window. They fell short of around $950 million that night after all the withdrawals had come in. That's not a huge amount of money to be able to shore up from some investors or from you know some partners to say we are still positive. But then as soon as they fell short, the Fed stepped in. And then what happened? Now, this is where it gets a little bit murky for me because I don't know the exact details. My understanding is that Goldman Sachs did come in and was working with the FDIC in order to guarantee the deposits and they refused which is bizarre to me. So let's go back to the beginning. This is a good business. So let's go back to the 2009 auto industry where the U.S. government ended up making $15 billion because the business wasn't broken. What happens here is that the mortgage bonds are not bad capital. As far as we know, it's still good capital. It's just illiquid. So this is more similar to the commercial paper situation that we had in Canada in 2009. And that is the problem in that if the Fed just said, yes, this is good money, which it was, or presumably good money, but you need time to unwind it. And by the way, there's there's going to be probably significant profits there. The taxpayer would make money. And I was beside myself why the Fed didn't play. And as I understand it, they have a bias that they didn't want a big bank to get this because of the too big to fail. And they wanted a regional bank. And I was like, what is the policy reason behind that? You got a potential contagion on your hands. Dudes, you don't have time. And that's the part that completely perplexed me. Yeah, of course. I think everyone hears the word mortgage and they think like, you know, the credit crisis of 2008. That's not the bond portfolio they had. These are better quality mortgage bonds that had longer duration. They just don't have a massive liquidity at the time they needed it to make do with all those withdrawals. And then the second part around the Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan buying it, let's all face it. There's no love for Jamie Dimon or any of these bulge brackets uh, in Washington. And so obviously they didn't want to have Goldman coming in swooping up this. But, you know, let's talk about sort of the impact on maybe your portfolio companies or the broader portfolio companies, because it was really the founders that were losing sleep over the weekend. Obviously, a lot of VC funds were too. We had some funding rounds that obviously were put on hold until we had some clarity here. But what were you seeing from the founder side and, and how did you step up and maybe calm their nerves a bit? We started working very closely with the federal government, very specifically the Department of Finance and the Deputy Prime Minister's Office, to help determine what should be the public policy. Is this a panic? Do we have a serious problem on our hands? And the problem was, you know, I had a hypothesis, but we really needed data to determine what is the extent of the the direct damage, not the contagion, but that's hard to quantify. And very quickly, the ecosystem responded in confidence. And what the data showed that somewhere between 80 to 90% of all Canadian tech companies had zero deposit exposure. So we already knew it was a clear majority. The approximately 10%, the data wasn't perfectly clear, but approximately the 10% that had some exposure, virtually all of it was very limited exposure, but there were a certain uh, few companies that had a material exposure, but, but it's not a pervasive issue. Then you go to the untapped credit. It was very similar stats. Now, the difference here, though, was Silicon Valley Bank had a good market share, but they didn't have the highest market share. CIBC Innovation does. But they, there was a bunch of untapped credit, and there were companies that were very concerned that they were, they were hoping to rely on that untapped credit for payroll or what have you. But remember, the covenant for Silicon Valley Bank was provided by investors. And guess what? You're in the business, Matt. 
shit happens, you better be there to help your portfolio company. And the reality is the good VCs were out there very proactive, offering up alternatives in the event that they needed that. And the difference between today versus, say, 10 years ago, there are a number of bank sources or EDC, BDC sources that were not prevalent at the time. So again, there was isolated circumstances for sure, but on the whole, it, it wasn't a catastrophic crisis. The last thing was, how about the actual debt that is owing? Well, we don't know the answer on who it's owing to yet. And we have to figure out who the U.S. buyer might be and whether they would buy the Canadian book as well. But I can tell you, if the Canadian book is sold separately, there will be a number of bidders uh, looking to buy that book. Yeah. So without naming names, you know, the Canadian business of SVB was it was financially sound. You know, their deposits were with RBC. And they were in a very good position. It was obviously the U.S. exposure that was taking everything. We saw uh, on Monday morning, uh, the Bank of London, I think, bought it, uh, SVB UK for a, a one pound or something. So who knows what the assets will sell for in Canada if they're sold separately. But I think like, you know, the thing that kind of got us was that one, we had to put all of our founders in a group chat and get them talking to each other just so we can share resources and calm the nerves a bit. Also, we're not a large fund. We don't have mass amounts of capital. You know, I saw some larger funds like Redpoint had put together a founder's fund of their own personal savings to help with payroll. We were doing the same thing if needed be for some of our smaller companies, if they couldn't get more than the 250 out of their FDIC insured portion. So there were some good stories that came out of this concerning moment over the weekend, but it feels like the risk of contagion has been mitigated for now. What do you think U.S. regulators need to do? I mean, today on Monday, obviously the regional bank sector is getting crushed. Who knows if that's shorts? Who knows if that's just panic? But this is going to take a while to roll through the ecosystem. What do you think regulators need to do immediately to stop this from getting any worse? I'm not a U.S. regulation expert, and I'm not sure how do you quell you know, lack of trust or confidence. But I think that if people had been very, very clear on what actually happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Now, I don't think it's a pervasive issue, but I don't know what the portfolios look like from the other regional banks. But this is where you get the market noise. Their business was solid and their their treasury risk was horrible. And it could be simply an isolated blip, but the regulators were making it very, very unclear. But the one thing they need to do is that ridiculous bill that was passed in 2018, that thing needs to be revoked. The fact, or at least mitigated from the perspective of, there's no way that if they had to mark to market, the same problem would have occurred, but it wouldn't have happened the same way. The moment they made those bad investment decisions, the market would have known. In Canada, from a regulatory perspective, that would not have happened. But it could be in Canada that somebody's made bad bets on their balance. Yeah. So what you're talking about is the the mark to market that they don't have to do in the U.S. for these hold to maturity portions of their loan book, which represented a big chunk, obviously, for SVB in this. You know, I have a bone to pick, though, John, with some of the media and some of these, you know, Twitter idiots out there. You saw Vivek Ramaswamy or something talking about how, you know, let everyone fail, let all the deposits be washed out, management included and everything. And, you know, yet he talks about productivity and GDP growth and, you know, economic reform of the Fed. Or you have some politicians and journalists talking about, well, just ignore all the losses then and do this for everybody. You know, bailouts are, are free for the U.S. taxpayer. Let's just clarify this right fucking now. This is not a bailout. TARP made $15 billion for the U.S. taxpayers. Explain to the audience what this actually is. This is relieving a liquidity trap. It's not a bailout. Frankly, the way that I would structure this thing here, to be blunt, if I'm in the U.S. government, is everyone gets their deposits back because that is who you want to protect. And I would wipe out 100% of the equity shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank. And, and you call back some of their uh, insider sales as well. Well, you, they're going to have to lawyer up. For sure. Because they knew the balance sheet was broken. I actually believe that there'll be profitability left after the liquidation. You just don't 
see it now. But this could actually add money into the coffers of the taxpayer, just like the auto industry. Matt, what was it, $15 billion was generated for the taxpayers. It was the same sort of thing. So this is a squeeze, not a loss, at least not yet, and based on the information that we've seen. The venture capital ecosystem, for all the wrongs that it did in causing this bank run on Twitter, there was an announcement that came out from some of the venture capital uh, leaders in the industry, and now over 600 plus VC firms have bound together to try and keep Silicon Valley Bank, if they can stop people from withdrawing their funds, if it does get acquired, that the institution can continue to, to live on. You know, What do you think about that? And do you think there is a second home for SVB in the future? I don't know. The part of the challenge is, is that having a regional bank acquire it, I think you're not solving the confidence issue. And I think that if you have one of the big four banks, and you know, the leading one that I thought it was going to be was JP Morgan, because they did it before with WAMU. Uh, but that would perhaps alleviate all of this deposit risk situation, was what, which was really getting everybody with high anxiety. But the thing that I do find odd, Matt, and I got kind of pissed off on Twitter myself, there were some VCs who said, take out the money. And there were some VCs that say, keep it. I'm not judging those decisions because both have pros and cons. What drives me nuts are the virtue signalers who publicly say, I, I, I profess my undying love for you. And then very privately, are telling their portfolio, get the hell out. Those are the folks that drive me insane. And frankly, there was a number of them on there. So when I see something like this, yeah, you know, there are clearly some of those VCs that really were very consistent, but I saw some names were folks that I already know what they were doing. And I just kind of tisk tisk it and just say, okay, whatever. Yeah, we were getting forwarded a lot of emails from our founders about what other VC funds were saying for them to do. And it was literally all caps letters in panic mode. And I just had to get on the phone and talk with these founders and explain to them exactly what was happening and not just taking some Twitter thread and sharing it. So look, I think um, we're still in the early days of this. I feel like we can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief right now and get back to building and hopefully some more funding. Because I think the biggest concern I think is uh, still unknown is one is, are VC funds still going to invest over the next little while? Or are they going to take a bit of a pause because maybe LPs are telling them to and everyone's kind of recalibrating themselves? And then with the companies that were waiting in 2022 to fundraise in 2023 because they had enough runway to last through last year and maybe in the first half of this year, well, things don't seem to be calming down with this happening. Does this put some of the companies that had 12, 18 months of runway from last year into this year at risk because now they can't raise maybe till the end of this year instead of this summer. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But 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 Matt, I, I, I'll speak for Canada in particular. The SVB situation hasn't changed what was already the bust of the funding cycle already. I mean, this doesn't help. It just adds a little bit more fuel. But those VC funds that that you know partied very very hard in 2021, uh, 2020 are already feeling the price. And you and I, we we held back. We had half a billion dollars burning a, a hole in our <laughs> pocket. And boy, was it tough. Yeah. It's really tough, but we knew. So when you make a comment like that about holding back, we are very excited this year that we want to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into the ecosystem, but at prices that actually make some sort of sense. So there's still a lot of dry powder out there for the right deals. And I think that's still the same message. In the U.S., I will agree, SVB had a far greater impact and a far greater market share in there. And, and that is hurting the financial ecosystem there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to wait and see how the rest of the week plays out here, John. But I want to end on a positive note. Our uh, hometown boy from Toronto, UCC grad, Brendan Fraser, won the Best Male Actor for the Academy Award. I mean, for The Whale. You sat beside him a few months ago and had a really nice discussion with him, obviously, about your your, your struggles and how you had to have some perseverance in your own life. What was that like? And what what did you talk about with him? How, How special of a human being is he? Oh my God! So we were at a uh, at an event, and uh, he had 
come over and, you know, I started talking to him about perseverance and going through some pretty deep struggles. You know, for me, it was, you know, by my cycling accident. And then I said to him, look, with what you went through and how you came to the other side. And then he starts crying and then he starts making me cry. And so we have two guys crying, crying at a table. My wife is looking at us. She can't hear the conversation going, what the hell is going on? And then you get a paparazzi photographer suiting me and him crying. And I'm like, dude, get the fuck out of my yeah. face. <laughs> and then what happened, here's the funniest part. So we're both kind of wiping our tears. And he had to go and pick up an award. And then five minutes later, they said, uh, Brendan Fraser, come and get up your award. And, and you know, he's kind of wiping away <laughs> tears. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, wow. uh, I didn't mean to do that. He goes up there. He starts thanking me, starts crying again. And my wife is saying, you see what you did? <laughs> but I got to tell you, this guy, lovely guy, was talking all about growing up in Toronto, going to UCC and his favorite hangouts in Kensington Market. Class guy. It made the Oscars for me. And man, uh, I just loved it. Yeah, it brought a tear to my eye, honestly, seeing that photo of you guys together. And then also just, you know, seeing him last night. It was it was unbelievable. There was actually another Toronto guy that won Best Documentary, a friend of ours, brother for, uh, yeah, Daniel Rower. Pretty cool. Yeah, that was awesome. Toronto, bring it home. Well, and, great. And you got Sarah Pauly. And Sarah Pauly, exactly. A big night for Torontonians. So, yeah, Canada doing us proud. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us on another news rundown, John. Brighter days ahead. All right. Thanks, Matt. Now, let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Connor Atchison, founder and CEO of WiseDocs. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Connor. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Connor, we obviously know each other pretty well, given our firm has been an early investor and supporter of you for several years now. But for our audience who doesn't know you, it would be great if you can kick things off with a bit about your personal background and what you did before you started your career in startups and technology. I really kicked off uh, 12 years serving with Canadian Armed Forces. I joined uh, as a young infantry officer in my first year of university. Over my, uh, my career, it was really the excitement that brought me into healthcare where I was passionate about. And I was able to, to work in various roles in health services and the Joint Personnel Support Unit. So that had a lot of influence on, on wise talks and, and getting into tech specifically in the medical and claim space. You know, a lot of people don't spend over a decade working for the armed forces. Some people do it as a, you know, a stepping stone into something else in their career, but you spent a long time with the Canadian armed forces. I mean, first off, what did you know about the armed forces before you went into it? And why did you stick around so much longer than most people do on average? There's a running joke uh, when you're you go to the recruiting center and you, you figure out what you want to do and, and what, uh, what trade. And it was like, who likes camping? Put your hand up and uh, you're in the infantry. So I really liked the outdoors. I, I love the, the aspect and the adventure. But I also had a passion for, for healthcare very early, and that led me to go on to get my master's in health administration. So I really think that that kept me in for the long term and just seeing uh, the impact within the health services and the joint personnel support unit and how, how it really helped soldiers and, and really drove things forward. So it was more of a passion at that point, and it really kept me thinking and innovating and that camaraderie for sure. Can you give our audience a sense of like where you spent a lot of your time around the world? kind of learning and seeing how different societies functioned and things like that? Just seeing, you know, different health systems and how they, they worked, uh, the U.S., Canada. So just getting that, that variety of understanding on both, you know, cultures and processes and frameworks and, and the way healthcare, you know, works uh, in various capacities really shone a lot of light on what worked and what wasn't. So it was, uh, it was great getting that, that first-hand experience in, in knowledge base. You know, we've had a lot of ex-military veterans on the podcast, and it's always exciting to hear their stories before they get into their next phase of life, whether it be startups, technology, or venture capital. But you ended up in a pretty unique position where you were dealing with like the healthcare and the technology side for the Canadian Armed Forces. I mean, what was that experience like and how did it impact your understanding of the overwhelming problems facing our governments and our healthcare systems? The, the one thing I'll commend the, the Canadian Armed Forces is the pan-Canadian healthcare system that they actually had, their EHR. And I think that that sh shone a lot of light on kind of where the, the gaps are with digital care and, and digital records and, and that information. So when you see, you know, anywhere in the world, you can access what, what's, uh, maybe it's called something different now, but the Canadian Forces Health Information System, it's pretty powerful. All your records are there. there there's so much opportunity to glean insights from that. 
And that really inspired me to say, why, why can't every country do this? Why is every province uh, segregated? Why are you know, various health systems not communicating with each other? Seeing that power behind a system that's completely unified and, and how you can access a patient's data and really help that care and create additional value. And I've seen that there's a lot of gaps in various sectors, whether that's insurance, whether it's in the primary healthcare field, and how do we get that uniformity and that, that aggregation? So that was a, a problem that I, I seen very, very, very quickly, and it perplexed me, and I wanted to solve it. Obviously, coming from the Canadian Armed Forces, seeing all the problems and all the data that was being absorbed by the, you know, the Canadian government and the healthcare system, it must have been pretty daunting for you without really a lot of tech experience to, to come into the world after your time at the Armed Forces as a tech CEO. So did you suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, coming from the Armed Forces before you wanted to become a CEO? I would say absolutely. I don't think anyone could say they don't. And, and really, you know, what is imposter syndrome? It's uh, constant anxiety that you're not qualified. And, you know, that it's an evil cousin, as uh, Ryan Holiday says, to uh, the ego. And really what I found, it was being focused on humility and focused on confidence. So confidence in what you know and being humble in what you don't. And that's where you build great teams and bring in people that can really level you up and investors and board members and mentors. So I think that that really helped tell the imposter that little thing on your shoulder to shut up. Uh, and then just really focus on what, what you can do and what you can bring to the table for your team. What was it that made you want to go about starting WiseDocs in the early days? And what kind of skills did you rely on from your time in the armed forces to help you kickstart the idea and then eventually getting it going and eventually funded by firms like us? Yeah, it, it was really like a personal and a professional side of things. So when I, when I actually seen it firsthand in various capacities and how it impacted soldiers day to day, specifically within the, the Joint Personnel Support Unit, you had a lot of ill and injured transitioning. That element was set up to actually support all of that, that complexity around leaving the, the military from a, from a medical ailment or a discharge. It, it just, it was slow, it was cumbersome, not necessarily the organization, but the process of getting that medical record reviewed and assessed so that you could arrive at a conclusion and, and either move on with your life or stay within the, the, the forces. So it, it kind of dawned on me that how do we speed this up? My personal experience with it, uh, when I was discharged medically, it took over 18 months. And it, it really hit home where my life was in a holding pattern. And that's where I really wanted to pick up uh, the, the torch and champion that for others and, and improve that claims process. And then I also had a personal family member that went through uh, the torque component uh, from a car accident. And I could see how long it took them to go through it. I think it was close to seven years. So I just knew there was something broken with that, that process. And I wanted to kind of tackle that problem. Yeah. I mean, waking up every day not being in control of something that you're being directly impacted by is nothing. There's nothing more motivating than that. I mean, a lot of our founders suffer from a lot of those like personal problems dealing with something. And then they're like, there's got to be a better way. I got to fix this. And that's what led you to obviously starting Wise Docs. But tell us about those early years, you know, how you ended up getting the technology to even figure out to solve this and, and really what Wise Docs is currently trying to solve today. Yeah, I think uh, the best way you can look at the technology, like it's all trial and error in those early days, like what stack do you use and how are you going to actually deploy things and the infrastructure, architecture, et cetera. And, you know, it is it's a daunting first step and you just got to, you're going to go with it and move quickly and then you can refine it. You know, that's what we did. And, and there's a lot of learnings around that. But, you know, once you can get to a point that actually solving the problem of going through a medical record and you're automating that process to some degree to help the end user, you, you, you get that product market fit. You get that aha moment. We're on to something. And then you double down on that and you got to you got to constantly improve and iterate. So that's where really uh, it's those those I guess you want to look at it from the ideation to the validation. And once you get that validation that you can you can move things, you got to go 100 percent all in. Now, just trying to solve the healthcare problems we face on a day-to-day -day basis are hard enough, but going through a pandemic like COVID basically set off an atomic bomb to the entire healthcare system, especially uh, a public healthcare system like the one we have in Canada. So maybe can you explain how COVID had a big impact on your business in a negative way, unlike other software businesses who maybe saw a bump because of COVID, uh, and how you were able to survive and eventually thrive post-COVID? 
It's really all about the assessment. So uh, if you have that medical record and give an example, someone gets in a car accident and they need a, a review of the, their symptom or their diagnosis, what happens is you have to go see that person and that doctor in person. And you need to have that medical record prepared in, in advance of that. So COVID really shut the door because it wasn't an essential service. And we've seen that completely retract and slow down. But, you know, on, on, a, on a positive note, it really created more digitization. So we started to see that that manual process of going through, believe it or not, paper or being in a back office and trying to aggregate things with a, an Adobe PDF reader. It allowed individuals and companies to say, you can work remote. And now we have a better, faster way of getting that prepared. So it really slowed things down, but it didn't completely shut off the taps. Everyone still needed to have the claims processed. Everyone still needed to, to go through the, the end-to-end part of getting a claim completed. So it was definitely hard. It was definitely hard, but uh, it really changed and everything digitized. So that, that benefited hugely. But you did something that was quite unique during COVID that Obviously, a lot of people had to pivot to as well, just to stay really afloat. Can you explain what you guys did to bring in additional revenue that you would not have done before, given that it wasn't your primary focus area, and eventually use that to leverage into a bigger opportunity down south? We actually kind of dabbled in the the COVID testing. Uh, When everything was at its peak in Canada, it was a frenzy of like tests all the time and and millions and millions of tests. So we, we started to build out part of our technology to try to capture that and automate it. So you didn't have a human looking at a test saying, you know, that person actually took it, it's positive, it's negative. So it was, it was definitely an opportunity that uh, helped us get through the, the lull. And then we realized it was not essential for, for our business. And we re- really doubled down in the U.S. on, you know, that, that ICP, right? That, that perfect client profile. That was an, an awesome opportunity. The U.S. was just ready for a solution trying to do that in one of the hardest healthcare markets on the planet in Canada. If you can make it through there, great. But once you have something with product market fit, we found that the U.S. just exploded. For some of our Canadian founders listening out there, you know, expanding to the U.S. is always the next step, but there's different ways to go about it. Can you explain how you expanded your product into the U.S. market and how you navigated the complexities of all the different healthcare systems, obviously down there as well? Yeah, it's really about a great team. And really building that team out in the U.S. that knows the region, knows the landscape, knows the compliance and legislation, and really gets it and has experience. And uh, we're lucky to bring on some amazing team members uh, out of Tennessee. Doug Markham joined the team and, and a few others. So we, we, we got into a really focused area, put the, the GTM strategy around that, built out the sales team and, and really doubled down on what we knew. And, and it, uh, it definitely paid off. And now we're getting a, a lot of traction, some great clients, great partners. And it's just, it's a really exciting time for us. Yeah. Your business has expanded exponentially over the years. I mean, what changes did you need to make besides the team to get to the next level? Like how your tech stack has had to change and how you've serviced clients as you brought on bigger and bigger clients. How has that had to change? And change you also as a leader? The biggest thing for me was, you know, looking at that team and uh, Mike Sorelli, he, he wrote a book called The Talent War and he had four principles. I think every early startup goes through. When you hire, you look at the B and C players doing the hiring. It's uh, homogeneous. There's no, there's no training. And uh, it's often like very uh, complex and not attached to, the, to where the, the, the vision of the, the organization is going. So we did fall into that in the early days. And through that, the business has grown and we've brought on new experienced A players. We've restructured how and, and why we're focused on, on the sales uh, funnel, the type of clients, uh, really zeroed in. That's helped us immensely. And then it's just understanding scale. And I think that's a big, big issue with early stage startups. The tech stack that you start off with uh, is not necessarily will your, will, where you will end. It's, it's knowing when to pull the trigger on ripping things out that can't scale, that aren't dynamic, and putting the right things in. And, and staying on top of that tech debt is as hard as that may be. So that's really what, it's, what we've been able to do is that constant iteration, that constant learning, and, and that refinement that's driven the company. Yeah, you and I have spent many nights talking about how building uh, the early technology stack for the wrong ICP can be devastating later on. How are you able to find, first off, the right ICP 
to sell to, and then also make sure that your technology was going to be able to service them, not for maybe just the first year, but beyond, and how you were able to say no to some customers right now that you can't service because you know your technology may have not been up to snuff for what you're proposing to sell to them to. Yeah, I think what we really have to look at is you can't build everything and be everywhere. So just zero in on the the low-hanging fruit and the wins and, and then build gradually layer by layer. And, and it's really about getting the, the feedback loop from the client and that relationship really succinct. And when you have that, you know how to prioritize and then you can really maximize your, your, your dev team. So that's, that's what we've really done. And I think so far very successful. And we'll continue to do that because if, if you lose sight of the, the end user and their needs, you're going to build a, the wrong thing and B you're going to have churn. And, and that's, that's huge, right? You put a lot of energy with your GTM and your sales team to, to get those clients and to lose them because you're not listening. That's a, a real big downside if, if you ignore that. Yeah, obviously, you know, you've been focusing a lot on the tech stack and speaking of like tech stack and, you know, developers and leveling up, everyone is talking about artificial intelligence these days, but you have been focusing on machine learning and AI from the very beginning and trying to help streamline the medical record review process for several years now. So can you explain how this technology has helped you scale your software solutions for the insurance insurance industry? Yeah, I think there's also a misconception on what ML and AI is going to do for the insurance industry and, and healthcare in general. It's not a silver bullet where it replaces the human being. We took the approach, how do we build you know, really good frameworks and, and a tech stack and an application that the end user can empower or enhance their output? So you know, you're never going to remove the doctor, or the underwriter, or the adjuster, but what you can do is help them have a more efficient and effective job and do, do that better and make their life more you know, enjoyable. It's not fun going through thousands of pages of, uh, of medical records to find some diagnoses and make a conclusion. If you can surface that in a faster way, it's just more enjoyable work for the end user. And it's also better for the claimant. They get a better result and, and a quicker experience. Uh, how do we shave down 18 months to two years to three months? Uh, that's a big difference when your your life's put on hold, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, as you say, start with the customer experience and then work backwards is the best way to do it. And by doing that alongside the healthcare professionals is a much better way than trying to just rip and replace, which a lot of people think they can use AI to do, which is probably not what the customer ends up wanting. Kind of like the way telemedicine has had to make its way into the healthcare ecosystem. But maybe explain how you know, tools like ChatGPT and all these APIs now made available are starting to impact the insurance and medical claim space. Again, it goes back to that silver bullet. You know, when you look at generative AI, you know, it, it's providing recommendations, but you have to be really careful in, in medical data to do that, right? There's a liability component. And what we've built our software on, on, on the premise that we are not going to tell you what the outcome is. It's, it's, a, it's an enabler. It's a force multiplier that allows the individual to find that quicker. So again, you've got to remove that liability. And I think that hasn't been hammered out quite yet. But what it's really good at is it's streamlining how many times you have to touch that application. How many times can you get and surface that right piece of information in a faster and more realistic way? And I think that's the power of layering a generative AI on top of multiple other application layers or models. But it's it's the, the sum of the whole that actually drives the the success of that solution, not one individual part. And uh, I think there's quite a big uh, misconception on that, that that is a silver bullet and it's going to solve all problems, specifically in insurance and, and healthcare. Yeah. I mean, speaking of miscon- misconceptions, maybe you can explain also to our audience, like how our healthcare records in the US are actually handled. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but they're not handled in the US. Can you explain the problem with the system and why it needs to be fixed? Yeah, there's a real issue with uh, offshoring. In, in some capacities, that, that's fine. But, you know, you, you can have records actually leaving the country. They're residing in India and the Philippines. Certain certain uh, organizations, you know, that, that won't be the case. You know, it's on-prem. Uh, it's, it's done in the U.S. So it's a complex ecosystem where there, there really is no one way of, of processing a medical record. And there's a lot of uh, gray areas. So I think really the power in the future of, of getting better insights on medical records and improving the claims process and that value, not only for the, the payer and the provider, it is really getting something that can, can have continuity and, and really getting to the root of that medical record in a secure and in a fast way. 
So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of debate around this topic. You know, there's pros for, for both sides, there's cons for both sides, but really at the end of the day, if we can get tech to enable that, have continuity, have that compliance, have strong uh, regulation, then, you know, that, that's where we actually can make the, the, the leaps and bounds in improving the, the system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but even if those changes don't happen immediately, you're still seeing explosive growth from the U.S. market, from the private side. So maybe you can explain, you know, what kind of growth you've been seeing and maybe talk about the recently oversubscribed seed round that you guys recently raised. We've grown 3x last year. We're on track for another 3x growth this year. So it's it's just been fantastic. Very busy, uh, <laughs> but in a good way. And, and I think really it's the trends that we're starting to see in the, the insurance industry. So you know, one of the, the big ones is that talent retention and the turnover. You're starting to see adjusters exit the, the market. You know, so the ones that have 20, 30 years of experience that know exactly where to look in a 2000 page medical record that would take someone one or two years experience or just freshening to the job with no knowledge on that 10 times the, the amount of time. You're starting to see the shift on how resources are actually getting those efficiencies and you're getting that turnover. They're retiring. And individuals that are coming into the roles are lasting nine months to a year on average. So it's a really high rate of, of cycling. And in order to, to retain those individuals, you have to make their, their lives more enjoyable by providing these applications and these tech solutions. And it, and it actually can streamline and, and empower them to get more knowledge and apply it more effectively. So that's one trend. And I think the, the insurance industry is moving more aggressively on, on digitizing, but also then ripping out a lot of this legacy architecture and, and infrastructure. And there's a lot of like tech debt and a lot of things that just don't communicate. So they're looking for, for things that can open up new business lines. They're looking at things that can actually cross-pollinate. And they're looking at how to use this data more effectively to, to maximize profits and, and, and just improve business. Yeah, so there's a lot of market, you know, uh, tailwinds for you guys to build into, and that's why you recently raised your oversubscribed seed round of 4.1 million. So, can you tell our audience like where WiseDocs is planning to grow, and maybe some new markets that you're trying to tap into, and some uh, exciting new product releases coming down the pipeline? Yeah, so we're, we're super excited uh, in the coming month. We've got some uh, major product releases around the the medical assessment itself. So with the, the claims process that we're looking at trying to, to really accelerate, it, it's all around the, the medical assessment. So it's the most expensive part of the process. It's the longest process. And it's usually the one with the most error. So if we can actually get better insights and surface medical information in, in a much more dynamic way, we can eliminate time, cost, and get better efficiencies. And again, it keeps going back to helping the claimant move through through the, the value chain end-to-end. And it's about giving the insurer more efficiencies. It's about helping their bottom line. And then it's also making the, the, the provider do a better job. You know, it helps them actually do more cases, look at it in a different way, and then again, help that claimant. So everyone in the, in the value chain just gets that improvement and that enhancement. So that, that's what we're excited about, getting more into the medical data, really pushing out these products with insights and, uh, and, and expanding uh, wherever there is need for that. Well, very exciting. I mean, your team has grown. What are you at? 45 people now? Yeah, I think we've 4X'd over the last year. So it's, uh, it's, it's been busy. <laughs> well, very excited. And, and uh, obviously, we're, we're believers and supporters in the mission that you're trying to achieve. So, you know, excited to see how things play over the next year or so. But before we wrap things up, we always like to ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. I don't really have one favorite podcast. I'm kind of like a, a junkie. I'll listen to everything from, you know, Jay Shetty to, you know, uh, any kind of finance. It's just I, I like every type of podcast, depending on the flavor of the day. So I know that's... Uh, kind of a, a long-winded answer, but I don't have a specific Well, one. fine. How about you do a shameless plug for your own podcast, which you recently started, I believe, last year? There we go. I'll be biased. Uh, talking wisely. Everyone should uh, to listen to some of the episodes. So it's, it's great. We try to shed light on it. And what's Talking Wisely about? Talking Wisely is about really the trends uh, within the insurance space, specifically in claims, what we're seeing, you know, subject, subject matter experts, and really just digging in and just uh, exposing and educating, uh, you know, what's happening. So it's, it's quite curious uh, to see like all the different facets and how, how dynamic and how uh, extensive the industry is. And uh, we really try to surface that and, and bring in some great, great speakers uh, to talk about their experience. Yeah, it's a great podcast and everyone in the insurance space should give it a listen or anyone who's thinking about, you know, building or learning about what's going on is a great listen for everyone. So second off is your favorite newsletter or blog. 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a Forbes junkie, so I, I like seeing some of the the articles there. That just what are the, what's trending? You know, what are, what are the the correlations? You know, everything under the sun from the insurance to the finance. It just uh, it's always consistent. Really like that one. Nice. Next is your favorite tech gadget. I'm really into uh, Remarkable right now. So it's like uh, an iPad that feels like paper, so you can doodle and scratch on it. So it's it's pretty cool. I've seen the ads for that. That is pretty cool. What do you just use it for like note taking and stuff? Yeah. So anytime you have a thought, uh, you know, the big, the big issue is when you have all these uh, notepads or journals and you, you go back to yourself, where did I put that? And you got to go through them all or, or you lose it. This is great where it's all digital. It feels like paper. It sounds like paper. It writes like paper. I love it. That's fantastic. I have a hunch with what your next favorite one is, but what is your favorite new trend? Definitely the the AI wars, as they call it. Like I, I'm really curious on on, on seeing where this goes uh, with OpenAI. You know, Google's in the space. You know, probably see Amazon. Like, there's just so much happening. It reminds me of you know when when cloud really exploded. I think we're at a, a precipice of something new here. So super exciting to to keep digging into that and seeing how it trends. What have you been messing around with on ChatGPT, or what are you asking it for? Yeah, so I think it's it's really like I said before and alluded to. Um, it's not the silver bullet, but how can you actually make things faster in, in the sense of like summaries and looking at that data aggregation and how do you splice it? So it, it is really interesting. Um, again, I'm I have I have mixed feelings about it, but uh, I think as it improves and I, and I think as it becomes more and more mainstream, we're going to see some really powerful ways of applying it. So I'm trying to stay in front of that and, and really dig in more and more and, and keep my ear to the ground on what's being done. Yeah, I totally believe with what you're saying. It's not the silver bullet, but it definitely could work alongside and augment a lot of the redundant tasks that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So excited to see how that plays out. Next is your favorite book. Favorite book? Uh, I just finished a book by Ryan Holiday, and it's the uh, Stillness is the Key. It's just, it's fantastic. Again, it's uh, it's one of those things from a, a stoic perspective, like how do you how do you just reflect and let things kind of surface? How do you look at all the different applications of of your day to day and how do you make sense of the chaos and noise and, and, you know, get that clarity. So I think it's a fantastic book. Nice. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Life lesson. It's just resilience and perseverance and uh, really thankful that, that that's been ingrained from my time with Canadian forces. Uh, when things are hard, just keep pushing, go back to, to what, you know, be confident in what you're doing and, and just, just be humble. And I think that perseverance always is the lead and you just can keep overcoming yeah, well, being a partner and investor alongside you, watching you build Wise Docs, I can definitely say you never give up. So, really excited, Connor. Thanks so much for doing this with Connor Atchison, founder and CEO of Wise Docs. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot and hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Maddie B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 